0: Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value based care with the top experts in the field.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. This is your host, Sarah Bliss Matusik, a principal with Day Health Strategies. And I am sitting here today with my colleague, Lisette Roman, who is a consultant at the firm. Uh, Lisette has recently spent a little bit of her time thinking hard about partnerships in the healthcare space. So I want to spend a few minutes first discussing that today. Um, And the reason this came to mind was because we were able to sit down this week with Clay Ferris, who is the practice lead at Mostly Medicaid, which many of our audience members might be familiar with as the organization that does webinars and roundtables with Medicaid leaders across the country. Um, Clay's team is considered really the go-to for anything Medicaid related, which is reflected in their Medicaid weekly roundup newsletter that you might be familiar with. And in addition to that, they they also have training and consulting services that they offer for organizations needing more practical help. So we were able to sit down with him today and kind of talk about you know what he's hearing in the Medicaid space. Um, but when I got to talk to Clay on the phone about accountable care and thinking about the Medicaid space it, at a broader level, we were able to hit on a number of different topics ranging from um, financial considerations. We talked about benchmarking. We talked about the importance of having good measures, not just for quality, but also for evaluating programs and performance Um And we noted that demonstrating the value of different demonstration projects has been a challenge, um, and probably always will be, but we really do need to focus on this um, to make lasting future improvements um, and funding decisions about other projects. Um, But one other big topic we touched on when we were chatting was the importance of partnerships and Medicaid and healthcare in general, which is what Lizette and I wanna talk about today, because this comes up in our work all the time. Um, So Lizette. You and I've talked quite a bit about this topic over the last few months, Um, so why don't we start by just saying a few words about different partnership types that organizations should
2: really understand today in this space. Thanks, Sarah. Sure. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think what I can do is provide a little bit of context for what we're about to hear of your conversation with Clay. So if we take a step back and think about partnerships in general, in any business um, scenario, there's kind of a spectrum, um, which starts at more kind of transactional partnerships. And what I mean by that um, is an organization, say I'm a health plan um, you know, that has an ACO, um, I might want to have access to a very specific and readily available capability, um, which would require just setting up a contract with a third party. So maybe I want to um, contract with someone who can provide housing services for my ACO population. That's going to be at the kind of the left-hand side of the spectrum of partnerships um, that any business could entertain. Uh, I think where, where we're really focusing and where Medicaid is really focusing is kind of a notch above that on the spectrum, um, getting more into the strategic partnership realm. So when you take that step up into more strategic partnerships, what you're doing is you're increasing the complexity of your relationship from both a, a legal perspective, which I certainly won't speak to because I'm not a lawyer, um, and from the integration uh, perspective. Now, the goals of a strategic partnership are going to look more like um, arrangements to share value. So maybe you're combining risk, like in some of the advanced payment models we're seeing in Medicaid. Um, maybe you're sharing funding, um, meaning that the state is providing some inf- some funding for you as an ACO, some funding for this, you know, um, uh, contracted relationship with uh, another organization. Um, You might also be sharing some resources. Maybe there's some staff that, that you're both um, using And I think, you know, the important differentiator between the more transactional partnerships and the more strategic partnerships are the strategic partnerships really require longer-term commitments. They're just more reciprocal in nature, and you tend to have a shared strategy, whereas, you know, those things are just not as important if you're just trying to set up some sort of transactional relationship where you're paying for a specific service. Does, does that make any sense? just as general background? Yeah, I think it does.
1: And it's a nice segue into one of the other topics that I wanted to discuss before we get into the interview, which is, you know, there are a slew of different types of partnerships that organizations have to be thinking about all the time. This is not new. We're not, you know, getting into rocket science territory here. But um, in this movement towards value-based payment, and we Acknowledge that a lot of folks have been in value based payment and and value based care for decades, you know, even longer. Um, But for some, this is much newer. And for those in that space, you know, what are some of these partnerships that they might be wanting to think about in a new way? Or, you know, what are some creative partnership opportunities for them? So you did mention a couple, you know, thinking more strategically about, hey, maybe we in this organization together could win in this space by, you know, a f- more positively affecting patient care or, you know, doing better financially, you know, if we were to form a, a more stronger partnership than we had before or a different type of relationship or a different type of contractual model. Um, so for groups that are thinking about, all right, you know, I, I know that I want to get into this type of partnership relationship. You know, I've got maybe a couple of you know, options for these partners, you know, and, and we're not talking about sort of an RFP type relationship. We're thinking about, you know, it's it's really about handshaking and really about understanding who you're talking to and, and really getting into more close knit relationship with them. Um, so, you know, what do organizations want to be thinking about when they need to evaluate those types of organizations or personalities or groups Um, and and not and I'm thinking of the organization itself and not necessarily the effects of what that partnership will do because I think some of that is already predetermined and there are you know that's understood that you would be thinking about that but I think we have been thinking a lot about what is it about the actual organization and the people at it that you want to make sure that you're clear on before you you know forge ahead
2: Am I making sense there? Making total sense, yes. And, you know, one thing I just want to say before I answer your question is that I think that sometimes there's an assumption when we talk about partnerships that there's some level of choice involved. And I think the reality is um, sometimes you know, ACOs and other healthcare organizations are actually in a position um, where they're being told um, either what type of organization to partner with, or um, sometimes if there are specific um, rules that the state is outlining for a program, for example, if you are an ACO, um, they might, the state might say, hey, you know, you have uh, have to contract with at least two of these organizations in each a geographic area. Well, guess what? If there's only two of those organizations in one of those geographic areas, you won't have a choice. Um, and so I think a lot of what we've been thinking of is how do we think about evaluating um, potential partnerships in terms of their viability, but doing away with this assumption that everyone has a, a list of ideal partnership candidates that they're pursuing. Um, And and I think that comes into play. So I just, I didn't want that to to be lost. But I think in general, it's been really helpful, you know, as we've been doing more and more of this work to think about kind of three main buckets um, where you want to look at your organization and your potential partner and see where you're aligned. Um, I think those three buckets are basically compatibility Um, So do you have a shared vision? Um, Do you have a good understanding of what you know, joint ownership and accountability will look like, uh, especially in in shared risk models? Um, And do you have complementary capabilities? You know, we're not necessarily saying that you need uh, your potential partner to have the same capabilities as you. Sometimes you partner with someone because you don't have those specific capabilities and and vice versa. Um, So it's not always looking at kind of what is the one-to-one match, but really like a puzzle piece, do we fit, And are we better together is is kind of the question. So compatibility is really the bulk of it. But then you also have some pretty important questions to think about, um, which are, you know, again, kind of back to, you know, basic business practice. So thinking about two other categories, one being capacity. What capacity does this potential partner have in terms of leadership? Is leadership totally bought in? Um, you know, are, are there some questions there? Um, do they have experience um, with this type of partnership uh, in the past? And how has that gone? And then organizational readiness. Again, has the organization as a whole done this before? And what does their track record look like? So that's capacity. And I think the second bucket is, is just operations, um, which is, you know, probably the most concrete area to look at. Um, but you know what what capabilities does your partner have in terms of finance? What's their baseline? Are they starting off on a strong foot? are there any risks there? And then, you know, what will your communication and collaboration look like? Um, and then, of course, you know, programs and services delivery, um, all of these things you have to look at to know, okay, if we enter into some sort of partnership with this company, what's it going to look like in six months, 12 months, 18 months? What can I expect that my organization is probably going to be, you know, pulling, you um, some of the slack in, you know, to, to account for, um, you know, any kind of lesser uh, capability or capacity on their end, um, versus what can we really lean on them to do that we know that today we're not maybe so so great or so you know steeply resourced in. Yeah, yeah, I of course
1: agree on all those fronts. I think that's a really helpful framework to thinking about partnership uh, capability areas and just evaluating. Uh, a partnership opportunity. And I appreciate what you said earlier about, um, thinking about the fact that many organizations don't have a choice in partner. Um, that said, I don't, I don't think that And one of the things that we've talked about quite a bit is, you know, at that point, you don't just throw your hands up and say, well, you know, we get what we get and, you know, we'll make the best of it. You know, there are definitely some strategies that you can put in place to maximize that partnership, even if it's, not the ideal group that you want to be working with. If you had, you know, a choice of 50 different groups, you maybe wouldn't have chosen that one, but, um, here's, here's what you're, you're stuck with in a way. Um, but, you know, thinking positively and, you know, glass half full in a way about, okay, what can we maximize in this relationship? How can we do that? And there, we have a couple of other ideas about how to go about that process, um, that we maybe could get to in a future episode. So, um, We'll table that one for now. Um, So those are just some things that we've been thinking about with partnerships. They're certainly important. There's a slew of different kinds. um, And uh, it comes up in the interview that we're going to launch into in just a few minutes with Clay. Um, So I'm going to give Clay an official introduction now. um, And then we're going to get right into the interview. But I want to mention before we do launch the interview that we had some technical difficulties with our sound quality. So you'll notice a a bit of a change from this particular portion of the podcast going into that one. Um, But it is worth the trouble. So please do listen to it. Um, so Clay Ferris is the practice lead for Mostly Medicaid, as I mentioned before. Um, he has an extensive background in Medicaid, but just in policy in general. He's advised uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's um, CMS, administrators. He's advised state Medicaid directors. Um, he works quite a bit with health plans, um, with their executive teams, um, and also with technology groups. Um, and a wide range of other, you know, clients into the provider space, regarding really policy, um, but also down to operational solutions to improve their ability to, you know, positively impact their companies, um, their organizations or agencies, and their clients and their patients. Um, Clay's been involved in policymaking um, at that level with both CMS at the federal level, with the state of Georgia specifically, Um, and he's extensive experience in management consulting, as I mentioned before. Um, So let's just get to that interview. And again, we do apologize for some of the sound issues that we had with it. Thanks for joining. Okay. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We are back with another interview, this time with Clay Ferris, who is the supreme leader of Mostly Medicaid, um, which most folks who are steeped in the Medicaid world may have heard of. Um, So we're going to start by asking Clay uh, a little bit about um, his background, but then we'll get into sort of his perspective on um, the sort of national outlook on Medicaid. So we're really excited for this conversation. So Clay, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Great um so can you give our listeners a little background on yourself? Maybe just tell us a little bit about your story and so how do you how you landed it in the position that you're sure. at now?
3: Sure uh, so I have a a company called Medicaid. I write and publish in the Medicaid space have been doing that for about fifteen years. I personally eat sleep and breathe Medicaid um, um, by training a researcher, uh, a writer, a speaker, I speak at a lot of different conferences we I have a passion for educating the space. Medicaid is a very complex thing, and I I come from a perspective Mm -hmm. of policy but also a business perspective. There's a lot of health plans in the space. There's a lot of other companies. There's a lot of other um, different groups that have to deliver on the Medicaid promise, and I I try to do what I can to sort of get them up to speed quickly through our webinars. I do a weekly Medicaid news roundup in which I'm talking about what's going on across the nation we do various other activities, um, publish white papers or other, other analyses. And that's sort of how we educate the space, and it's also how we sort of market our consulting side. But we do consulting. That's how we pay the bills. And most of that ends up being some type of strategy consulting or sales support. just depends. We've had all types of clients over the years. Like I said, I've been doing this about 15 years. Um, before I was doing this, I worked to kind of walk back my story, worked for uh, CMS and Central office in the Medicare Coverage and Analysis group, and focused on Medicare policy. So we, I was charged uh, using healthcare research skills uh, to, you know support evidence-based decisions for different things in the Medicare space. That's where a lot of my clinical background came from. Uh, before that was uh, went to Hopkins School of Public Health. And before that, I had a master's in history.
1: Well, history—that's interesting. Maybe we'll have to have a separate conversation about that in another episode. Yeah. Um, great. So let's dive in. I think that I think our listeners are going to be sort of treated today by your perspective um, because it's so broad, um, even though it's specific to Medicaid. So, what we would love to hear from you first is really what folks should be paying attention to on the national level in regard to value-based care and alternative payment models specific to Medicaid. Um, So we know that CMS has shown a lot of interest in advancing alternative payment models, and they're trying to increase the number of risk contracts through things like requiring two-sided risk for the uh, Medicare ACOs. Um, So is there similar movement by CMS, or do you expect there to be, to encourage states to implement our um, alternative payment models in Medicaid specifically?
3: Right. Uh, so I think uh, a couple of a couple of things that are important to to be paying attention to value based payment what we've been try- this is one of these topics in Medicaid that we've been kind of talking about and saying we're doing and trying to figure out how to get it right for quite a while um there the, is the, the similar discussion of pay for performance and what is value and we really ought to have better outcomes for more payments and all that kind of benchmarking things um, the current latest evolution is in, I believe, the Medicaid ACO space, but this has been going on, you know, with Medicaid health plans or even providers, that kind of stuff, for, for quite a while. States have been attempting this for quite a while. And as far as Medicaid ACOs go, although I know more than the average bear, absolutely the team at day health is what, who I consider the experts, and that's not just, not just flattery. I mean, I think um, <laughs> one of the things I want to do uh, on, on, on value-based payment and on social determinants of health, one of the bigger problems in this space is we got a lot of people talking about some concepts and about research, and everybody's nodding their head. So I, I go to conferences all the time, and I'm asked to lead them all the time. And I, I cannot sit through another presentation on the conceptual framework for value-based care or for the conceptual framework. So hell, I've got to start seeing people giving us on-the-ground examples of what's actually happening,
0: proving things,
3: evaluating things that are being done, and that's that's particularly important in the ACO piece. Uh, yeah. And I do appreciate the work that Day Help has done. Uh, I do think you're out in the front of that. Particularly, I mean, y'all y'all you spoken to our audience about that before. And it's not just anybody that I trust to let speak to my life. Um, things I would be willing to look. Things I would think about if I say I were an ACO. And as I see this world changing quickly around me, I'd look for contractor partners <laughs> willing to take risk as a part of standard agreements. I'd look for people that walk in the door. And say, let us be your care management partner. Let us do your health assessments, and here's our standard contract, and here's the upside and downside risk that we're willing to take. Um, I would look for those types of things. I, I would also be aware that you're going to need those types of partners. Um, I've heard some nightmarish stories of, One of- uh, becoming an ACO thinking, hey, this is easy. We'll, we'll do all that stuff that health plans do, and we've got to do Health risk assessments on forty-five thousand patients in ninety days, and they have no idea what they're going to do. So, yeah. to realize there there are important partners. There there are very much uh, new operational tasks that naturally you've probably underestimated the the effort and the lift because you usually don't do these things. Um, the other thing is, you know, I would really hire some some data geeks um, understanding how performance measures contribute to the overall payment calculations, whatever they are. They're going to be different in each market, but I think people mistake that there's a lot of different things being measured with every one of those measures are equally important for the actual payouts. Uh, if you're just on the financial side, and a lot of what I do is on the financial side. Um, in that similar vein, I think folks should be looking for reliable solutions for tracking performance to value-based contract requirements. These are complex contracts. Um, again, there are people out there that can help you with that, or you can develop it in-house or a mix of both. Um, don't underestimate the administrative burden around tracking. Uh, don't underestimate the impact of patient compliance, particularly in the Medicaid population. You're going to have a different uh, in in some treatments in some populations for a myriad for myriad reasons, uh, but it's going to connect to your to your wallet. Uh, so keep that in mind when you're talking about discussions of how things get risk-adjusted for your book versus other books. Uh, similar idea, attribution, I'm sure most folks that have done any type of ACO or CIN understand the importance of this. Um, and then one other thing that I think that I see as far as migration in the value-based payment and the plan side is you, know, you probably want to advocate for being held accountable for year-over-year performance in your own uh, practice or population more so than national benchmarks. Uh, and that's important for a lot of reasons. Um, an example would be, say, if you're in the state of Tennessee, and if every provider group in Tennessee is really struggling to get anywhere near the 75th P-tile nationally for Medicaid HMOs, then maybe that's not the right benchmark and you should advocate for hey here's where we were last year and we got 10% better that type of thing. Um, is that helpful? That sort of Yeah, that 50, makes a 000. lot of sense.
1: Yeah, you, um, yeah, I think you answered uh, 16 different questions that I had in one, so that was really really <laughs> helpful. Um, So, you know, maybe if we take it back up a level, like, what what do you think we should be paying attention to at the state level with these value-based care and alternative payment model transformations? You know, what we've seen so far is like 10 to 20 different states are really pushing this and kind of trying to be out in the front. Are we seeing, do you see more of that, you know, coming down the pipe? Do you think that, you know, in 10, 20 years, everyone's going to be doing this?
3: Well, I'm, I'm sure they are because they have been doing this for 20, meaning, meaning something called value-based payment. I mean, I can whatever that means. I can point you to one of the first things that put us on the map was our crash course uh, in Medicaid, uh, and I, I think we put that out more than 10 years ago, and it was a document we gave out for free until we realized how valuable it was and we needed to pay some bills. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, on the, on the front cover, it shows. Um, the, the, the tagline was something like, learn 90% of what you need to know to succeed in the medical industry in 90 minutes. And there are pages and pages and pages about value-based payments and what states are doing and what is value-based care, that kind of thing. So to answer that question, yes, I know we'll be doing this for 20 years. We'll be using different words to describe it because we've changed the words over the years. Um, in the same way that care management and population health and disease management and all degree uh-huh. of overlap. Or, but they've all been being done in some way, you know, over the last. And that's week. new,
1: but, mm-hmm.
3: right? So I think, I, but I think to the heart of what you're asking is, what's it going to look like, regardless of the terms we're using and the concepts or whatever. What's it going to look like? And I think the two two things that I think are specific. to talk about at the state level, so you know, Medicaid happens at the state level, or you know, medicine happens, you know, in a specific place. And so, so if you're in a if you're in a state and you're you're trying to figure out what's really going on, what I see going on. Uh, state by state, focusing on certain populations for the prioritization of what 's getting incentivized and typically it 's going to be high risk maternity that 's always a leader in any of this stuff. everybody cares about mamas and babies so you 're going to have the perinatal uh, measures you know you 're going to have uh, timeliness of care all that kind of stuff postpartum all that type of thing so those are if you don 't already have those um, expect those being measurements. Um, Right. Child, uh, those are ones that buy all that w- I've actually done a whole lot of work uh, for some clients that are trying to figure out you know, how to focus on what measures um, in this space and, and there are six or seven particular measures that almost every state that has these programs which most managed care programs do. So I mean there's a high degree of overlap. We realize they do change um, but figure out which measures really matter pretty quickly and think about mamas, babies and kids. Yep. Um, and, and then the other one is I think that's that's going to matter and that will change how this thing we call value-based payment looks moving forward is there's a lot of talk of meaningful evaluations of 1115 demonstration waivers moving forward which haven't really done that and I don't know how sort of policy wonkish this audience is but um, these are the innovation waivers these are the demonstration waivers the, to super simplify Um, They're a way that states can ask to kind of change the rules of overall Medicaid so they can do something they think is innovative. They've been around a long time, and CMS has approved them for a long time. And a lot of the value-based payment stuff or ACO stuff is coming under these. There's other types you can do. They're supposed to evaluate, hey, you, you told us this experiment would work. We gave you a whole bunch of cash. Did it work three years later, five years later, or whatever? Historically, that hasn't really been done in a meaningful way for most of these 1115 demonstration waivers. that kind right. of set on auto renewal. And and OIG has, has been publishing a good bit in the last several years about, hey, y'all are supposed to evaluate these CMS. What gives? Why aren't you doing this? You really need to do that. So I would think that might um, be, a, in my view, a positive force of requiring... Um, you know, some more transparency in what actually is working and what's not, not just what words we need to use to get the federal match for our innovation, but whether or not our ideas worked.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And i could you say what OIG is? Did you? um...
3: Uh, The Office of the Inspector General, and I'm speaking particularly of federal HHS, Office of the Inspector General, GAO uh, will put out other stuff, um, the Government Accountability Office. There's, there's a couple of different reports, and there's been more um, in the last years uh, just kind of call for these things.
1: Okay, so we're expecting more scrutiny on the sort of reporting and evaluation end of these waivers.
3: That, that seems to be. Um, not only, again, I think it's clear in my view it's needed. Uh, it's it's neglected. Um, but I think based on what I've been seeing kind of in the general press over the last year or two, um, there's also... Discussion. There may be some sub-regulatory stuff happening. I don't. I don't know. Um, I can point folks to some really, really good experts on um, that have good crystal balls on predicting regulations changes in this area. Um, but that I, I would be surprised if we don't start seeing um, more uh, specific requirements for measurements. in the where this will happen is in the waivers themselves, in the in the applications and the approvals.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um,
3: Right. I mean, for the people that are familiar with the old 1915Bs uh, and Cs and other, like if maybe you might, your state might have a HCBS waiver, and this is getting really, really wonkish, but you know, you get into you have to show the calculation of G and G prime and all this other stuff. That there were high-level attempts to show and then be required to demonstrate, you know, some of the cost savings and that kind of thing. I think we're going to move well beyond that and you know have some specific known requirements for evaluating whether or not something should be approved based on performance, you know, quantified performance of the of the innovation.
1: Right, right. Okay, that's really helpful actually. I, and I appreciate that perspective. I think we've been waiting to see that as well on our end. Um so I know we're, we're coming up on the half hour here, and I want to make sure that we use your time well. So maybe for a last question, you know, what, in your opinion, is sort of the most, I know we we're sort of saying, and I think it's funny yeah. that you're a history background. Um, so historically, it's sort of, this is, you know, rinse and repeat of a lot of stuff that we've seen before. But is there anything that you're excited right. about or that you think is truly innovative or that's moving the needle um, in a way that maybe we haven't seen before?
3: Um. You know, I did, I did some thinking about this uh, just in, in prep for this. I mean, overall, I would say I am generally skeptical in what I've seen so far. Um, the yep. things that are most promising, um, in my view, are when you get when when you look at a broader look at, like say Tennessee, and I think I might have even used them as an example before. They're not the only ones that look at episode-based things. Um, so just from a overall clinical perspective it's way more important because our ultimate goal is not to create a gameable system where you just know the right you know numbers to feed into the computer or whatever our ultimate goal is to create something that matches up with how the human body works and illness works and measure it you know and pay out based on you know how well it was treated and episode models, in my view, are the most promising. And actually, it has been, I mean, Tennessee is on, like, year, I don't know, five or something of rolling out yeah. uh, a whole slew of different, you know, here's what we pay for bundled knees, here's what we pay for treatment of this, that kind of thing. And usually, it's funny, usually knees and hip happen first in most of these implementations in terms of episodes. So I think, um, you know, my... Whatever it is, I think something that is best aligned, like in terms of the most promising innovations, that is best aligned with actually going for the outcome we want, which is improved outcomes. Yep. Um, you know, I think those types of more comprehensive things that are actually more contextual to how medicine and illness actually work versus one off. I actually. Personally, a lot of times I think there's problems with paying just on HEDIS measures because they're, they're so specific. And people don't realize, you know, if Clay's ACO gets four more people in the numerator, then their HEDIS score goes way up and then they get a million more bucks or or the converse.
1: Okay, that's helpful. I You know, I appreciate that perspective. I think it's realistic. <laughs> right. Um. All right, so we're out of time, um, but we would like to, again, thank you so much for joining us um, for this particular episode. And um, if you don't mind, we'll check back in with you from time to time as you uh, learn more, and we do too.
3: (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: All right, great. We'll talk to you soon. All right, we are back. Um, so that was a really fun interview to have with Clay. He's always a joy to talk to. Um, one of the things that I didn't mention in the beginning of this podcast was, uh, in the slew of things I, I mentioned that we talked about with Clay, was the fact that this is what's really going on in Medicaid right now, and what we've been talking about over the last several episodes isn't isn't really new. Um, it's all been tried before in different ways, and um, you know maybe presented in a different manner. Um, but that brings up a, a good point, which is that we do need to make sure that we're continually, you know, reading back on historical demonstration projects and different things that have been done, not just in the Medicaid space, but in you know the value-based space, and thinking about what does improve population health, what improves outcomes for patients, you know, how can we change the way that we incentivize or pay for different services. Um, to positively impact the things that matter to us, like access, quality, cost, equity, you know, population health, those sorts of things. Um, so, I did appreciate that we, you know, were able to kind of touch on that with Clay. Um, what do you think about that, Lisa? Yes, I'm.
2: I'm glad you said that, Sarah. Um, because what I was just thinking when when you were articulating how this is a little bit, you know, haven't we heard this before? Haven't we seen this before? Um, it just reminded me of our, our episode with um, Dr. John Sargent, when we were talking about behavioral health integration. Um, you know, as, as he said, we were we started doing this 40 years ago, right? Um, and I don't mean that to be discouraging. I think every time you know we go through one of these iterations, we're making progress, and it's come. Back because there's something there, Um, and I I think that's just really important um, to highlight and to learn from previous generations. And I I just love that we have this podcast to capture some of those themes. Yeah, I agree. And you know, going forward, you know, looking back at the past and really
1: making sure that we understand the results of different projects and lessons learned, you know, it also puts the impetus on us for work that's going on right now across multiple states that we do a really good job of evaluating these programs and making sure that the data and the information that flows out from these is appropriate for the people that come after us that are trying to do the same or even better work than we are doing right now. Um, So with that positive note, I think we'll end for today. Um, Thank you so much for joining yet another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. My name is Sarah blis and my colleague Lizette Roman is with me here today. So thank you from both of us for joining, and we will talk to you in a future episode.
0: If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system... Please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com. Check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare care issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. Special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs.